1: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase Mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
0: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam So, Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by the legendary Buffy St. Marie. For more than half a century, Buffy has been telling her story through songs. Although, not just her story, but... The story of her people born on a cree reserve in saskatchewan canada she was removed from her family at a young age she doesn't know when exactly she grew up with her adoptive family in massachusetts she managed as well as anyone could given the conditions we get into all that early in this talk come time for college she attends the university of massachusetts where she earned double degrees in teaching and oriental philosophy As she left school for New York City, she would inject those two majors into her songwriting. Part educational, part philosophical, Buffy began playing music that no one had ever quite heard before. By the early 60s, she was traveling the world singing folk songs in concert halls and coffee houses, like the Gaslight Cafe, alongside Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, and Joni Mitchell. She did all this by the age of 25. From there, her career has taken many shapes, with music always at the center. She wrote love songs, protest songs, spiritual songs, a combination of which got her blacklisted by Presidents Nixon and Johnson. She won an Academy Award in 1982 for co-writing the song Up Where We Belong, from the film An Officer and a Gentleman, making her the first indigenous person to win an Oscar. She had a five-year run as a cast member on Sesame Street, where she was the first person to breastfeed a child on national television. Her music has been covered by Elvis Presley, Roberta Flack, Johnny Mathis, Cher, and Barbara Streisand. In fact, it's next to a photo of Streisand that a photo of Buffy sits at the top floor of the new Academy Museum here in Los Angeles. The wall of women is dedicated to trailblazing talents that broke barriers and records, like Hattie McDaniel, Rita Moreno, and Sophia Loren. There, Buffy seems to be receiving the kind of recognition that is long overdue from this country. So, in celebrating National American Indian Heritage Month, and of course, the legacy of Buffy's work, I wanted to have her on the show. She's now 80 years old and more vibrant than I am after two cups of coffee. Just sitting across from her in person, there's something infectious about Buffy's optimism. It's not blind optimism either. It seems hard fought, a woman who's seen it all and has had the courage and the talent to put her life into music for over 50 years. Today, she shares the songs and the sometimes difficult, sometimes beautiful experiences that made them possible with us. I hope you enjoy. Buffy St. Marie, nice to meet you.
3: Thank you. Nice to meet you, too. How are you feeling? Good.
0: Now, your music has taken you all over the world.
3: (laughs) A few places. (laughs) I haven't been.
0: But I want to go back to you at the age of three. It's my understanding that it's around that time that you discover a piano?
3: It's my first memory. I, re- I remember uh, finding the piano and it was just the most incredible toy ever. <laughs> and it kind of still is, you know, I discovered music through play. And I think it's made a tremendous difference in the kind of music that I write, in the longevity of my career and staying into it and motivated and it, it, it was very, very weird for me as a child because I was told that I couldn't be a musician by whom. Well, when I went to school, I mean they never heard me play, but you know they were trying to teach us to mi so and you know that middle C is is where it's at on the staff, and I couldn't read. European notation it was weird to be told that you can't be a musician when that's all that you think you are I mean you know my identity the one thing that I knew for sure was when I went home I was going to sit down and play anything I want
0: at the age of three you knew I'm a musician
3: no I knew that this is the most fun I've ever had And it has continued to be A lot of people who can read music, God bless them all. I mean, there's for me, there's three hundred and sixty degrees of ways to be a musician, to approach a musician. and yeah, wherever you're coming from, you approach music in that way. But there's no money in some of the best things in the world, like natural musician, like being a natural artist, like like clean water, like breastfeeding. There's no money in it. Where does the money come out? You know it it almost doesn't exist in the world that we live in. It's not acknowledged. Just the idea of being shunned and shamed in music classes throughout my life and <laughs> being a musician. I mean, it should maybe have, have made me mad or mean or something, but it just kind of makes me laugh. Because the natural things that we have, you know, they're ours. There's nobody can take them away. It doesn't matter if they don't see them.
0: So growing up between Maine and Massachusetts, mm-hmm. you had this daily after-school routine. You said I'd drop my books at home, grab my skates, go down the hill to the lake, and skate until dark. In your head, you'd have a uh, certain kind of music that I wanted to play for you here.
3: Oh, okay. Oh, Swan so like... Lake. <laughs> I'd have that playing in my head and I'd be sailing around the <laughs> It was great, you know, it's kinda of like having playlists in your head before we had phones that did that, you know? I've always been able to hear music in my head. Music that, you know, like what we're listening to or what I'd hear on the radio, or if there wasn't anything, I'd just make it up myself. And it was as free as when you, you know, if you take a bunch of little kids to the beach. They all make art. And our adults are just too, <laughs> too lame to recognize it as art. They make sandcastles and architecture. They use their imaginations. They make drama. They make up stories. They make up dialogue. They make pictures. They dance. They sing all naturally. And if only we can find a way to nurture that in every person, I just think we'd have a better world instead of that's what we have to get rid of let's get something that people pay for to substitute for it that's kind of you know one one of the little itches that <laughs> that i would love to scratch
0: it's funny because in your authorized biography you have this whole passage about parents encouraging their children to create and it made me wonder did your parents ever do that for you
3: no but they didn't tell me to shut up which is just as good <laughs> No, I was raised uh, as an adopted child in a a rather humble family and um, people were not uh, musicians. For me, the big thing is what was left out. Nobody made me take lessons. Uh, They took me to a a music teacher and I was probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe in grade one, you know, just young, five or six. And uh, the the music teacher, God bless him, said, "Don't ever make her, <laughs> don't ever make her take lessons unless she begs for them." And I never did. And in a way, as an adult, you know, as a person who's had a professional career in music, I can see a lot of great things about reading music, and I wish that I could. But <laughs> one time, I was talking to Chet Atkins. And I told Chet that, you know, I've always had a hard time. People give me a hard time because I can't read music. Uh, You know, the boys in the band will give me the business because they can can read and I can't. You know what I tell people when they ask me if I can read music? I said, no, Chet, what? And Chet said, not enough to hurt my playing. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how it is for me, too.
0: I wonder how much music served as refuge for you in your childhood, where you grow up with these adopted parents— Albert and Winifred. He was a mechanic. She was a newspaper copy editor. It was not an easy childhood. And it sounds to me like music was your safe space away from all of that.
3: Well, kind of, but it was a lot more than that. And uh, with with, uh, respect to my parents, uh, I did have a hard time as a child, but not because of them. You know, there were pedophiles in the neighborhood, and there were pedophiles in the house, but my mom and dad were were both very nice. And uh, my mom was—my dad didn't pay that much attention to me because I was a girl, but my mom wanted me to go to college. My mom was part Mi'kmaq. Mi'kmaq is what we say now, but when we were growing up, she used to say yes, that she was part Mi'kmaq. And yeah, I did. I had a hard time, but music— Music wasn't just a refuge. i can I can see why everybody would think so because a, a kid with a you know with a rough childhood like that, I did hide away. I did uh, take refuge. I, I you know when i was when I had the blues, I'd sit down and I'd play these tragic <laughs> melodies. But you know, music, let me say, was um it wasn't just a refuge. it was also my joy. I'm very fortunate, you know, I've had two families, and I've loved them both, and they've loved me too. And my second family is my Cree family, Amo Pipot and Clara Starblanket Pipot. And uh, they took me in, and there's a Cree tradition that if a family has lost babies or children, they search for someone to replace that child that person in their lives, and that's what happened to me. They adopted me. They took me in, and in, in case any of you are, are envisioning like a christening, a baptism, or a wedding, it wasn't like that at all. There's no, there was no, it's not like a ceremony that we could film. No, they just told me. Um, we were just in the home of my niquimis niquimis is a Cree word, and that's the person who names you, and so he became my name giver, and I was just part of the Pied family ever since, and I still see my family who raised me, uh, especially my, my sister, but for the most part, they became my family for the rest of my life, and my nieces and nephews, you know, I've seen them uh, grow up from <laughs> from babies to having their own babies, and... It's really given. It's really, <clears throat> it really, healed something inside me, I think, that I was um, not even dreaming of as a child. I didn't even know I was missing it. But when you say home, that's kind of what really solidified it for me was you know, having a, a new family who may or may not actually be related to me. We really don't know. But it just doesn't make, make any difference to any of us. Uh, I also have a sister in, uh, in the same family. So they had two babies die, two little girls. And so Brenda, who's my sister now, um, Brenda was the first, and then I was the second to heal the hole in their families, and it certainly healed a hole in me.
0: I know many people listening right now, at 18, haven't had an experience like you're describing at any age, and I want to know, how did that feel, to heal in that way, in that moment?
3: It was just something lovely. It, I already felt like I belonged with them anyway. I'd been spending lots and lots of time with them. I knew that they wanted me to be a part of their family. I knew about that tradition. It's not as though the moment came <laughs> and we did it. It wasn't like that. No, it was just a conversation, you know, and, and uh, J.B. burned some sweetgrass. He said some prayers, and Cree prayers are long, And my dad, Emil Pine Pine, said some prayers. It, It was wonderful, but it didn't really feel like a ceremony.
0: I guess what I want to understand before we move forward is this sense of home. You know, all of us try to find it throughout our life. For some of us, it comes easy. For some of us, it comes later. And I wondered when you began to understand that your home was not so easily defined.
3: When I'm out traveling, you know, it occurs to me that If I'm thinking about family in Saskatchewan, for instance, on the reservation, right? They don't know what my life is like. I don't have a normal life. I'm an entertainer. (laughs) I travel all the time. I live in hotels and airports. I don't have some of, you know, the things that I long for. Like what? Oh, just being around for powwows and birthdays and fun and, you know, just to be able to go to weddings and funerals and, and special events and family things. You know, I'm just not there. I'm just not there. I'm always in someplace else. So in a way, I've lived on the road for over 50 years. I took 16 years off in the middle of my career to raise my son, but still, my sense of home really is in Hawaii on my farm. I live with a whole bunch of animals. So I have a double life. It's, it couldn't be better. It's not either or. They're both wonderful. I'm so fortunate.
0: But you do eventually leave both of your families for college in 1958. It's there at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst that you begin playing your songs for classmates. How did you like playing for someone else, not just for yourself alone in a room, but in front of other people?
3: I play music in a funny way that kind of takes the trepidatiousness out of it in a way because it's fun and because it's not really for an audience. It's just for your friends. You know, it's, it's like when you sit around a campfire with your buddies and if you, you know, you, everybody plays a song on the guitar, it's no big deal.
0: Can I add one thing? I've been around a lot of campfires. Yeah. It's not very good. <laughs> if I was around a campfire and Buffy St. Marie started playing, I think my jaw would drop.
3: Well, people did like it, but it wasn't <laughs> scary. It wasn't like stage fright kind of thing because it was real funky. It was just for my friends, and it was you know around a fire or in the dorm or something. But when I started professionally, I wasn't trying to get into show business. Is the thing I had something else in mind anyway. I was gonna go to India and become a saint. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> As one does, yeah. And my major had been Oriental philosophy and religion. So I was studying world religion. But what I was really studying was not the facts of who did what when. I was just really hungry. Like I'm hungry for music. It's just delicious to me. I have always found it delicious to talk with anybody about how they perceive the creator and the creation. And when it says even in the Bible that we're made in the image of the creator, to me that's always – that's our green light for creativity. That's our green light to stop just sitting there and doing the same old thing every day. You can be somebody different every day. In my philosophy... Everybody is ripening at our own pace, just like any seed or any flower or any tree or any animal. We're all ripening, each one at our own pace. And that's why we don't have to judge each other. We can teach and share, but we don't ever have to correct our buddies. You know, I've known people who are (laughs) really trolly and who, if somebody makes a mistake, (laughs) they just feel compelled to correct the person. But I feel as though if you let that go, it's like a big burden off your shoulders. None of us have to be correct. and and trolling on each other. We don't have to do that.
0: You've always had this generosity of spirit, and I think it applies to some of your music, especially when you get into protest songs, which you have this quote I really like that I want to read. You said, because I never come from anger, I think my message has been clearer. Protest songs have to be more than emotional, angry Indian songs or angry anti-war songs. It's okay to do that, but anger itself is not necessarily effective in making change, which is what I wanted to do. And that philosophy you're talking about, I think it first seemed evident in the song Now That the Buffalo Is Gone. Why don't we take a listen?
3: A treaty forever George Washington signed He did, dear lady, he did, dear man And the treaty's being I feel about audiences the same way as I feel about kids. As a teacher or someone who has some information to deliver, I'm not there to break your heart, to scold you, to make you feel bad, to insult you or any of that. No, I'm just there to put the facts out there. Now that the Buffalo's Gone is a pretty easy song to write. All it is is a list of facts, but it's facts the general public didn't know anything about. They didn't know that the Seneca Reservation was being flooded in order to build a dam for which there were three alternative sites. But somebody was going to make a fortune on this one, and they did. They evicted the Senecas? What? They broke the oldest treaty in congressional archives that had been made in in the time of George Washington? They broke that treaty? And here I am singing to people in New York who don't even know anything about it. I wrote that song because I thought if people only knew that they would try to help. And in many cases, they did. And I'm very proud that they did, you know. It's not only non-Indian people who don't know what's going on under the covers. It's also us indigenous people. And when I say us indigenous people, even that (laughs) deserves a little bit of an explanation. Since we're not all the same, it's not as though we're a homogenous group. We're all over the place. I mean, I'm not a Seneca, but I was singing about the Senecas. And I was not trying to scold the audience. I was just trying to give them the facts. I feel as though when I stepped out on a stage as, uh, what was I I guess, 21 or 22, I guess, in, in New York, and I sang that song, the only reason that I had the nerve to even open my mouth and sing, because I didn't consider myself a singer or a great guitar player, was because of the content of the songs. I was hoping somebody else would sing them. but <laughs> Judy Collins and Joan Fiennes weren't going to sing my songs, obviously. You know, they had their own. So I was stuck with being the singer. <laughs> and I didn't think I'd ever have a career as a singer. Along about my second or third album, having been shocked at the cuts and the takes that Vanguard had chosen, where sometimes I wasn't singing in tune, <laughs> Oh, I said, oh, girl, you got to learn how to sing. So I started listening while I would sing, and I didn't used to. I would only be telling the story. I could have my eyes shut tight in the dark and telling you the story. But I think it's that
0: ability to tell a story that caught people's attention in the early 1960s, especially as you're performing at a place like the Gaslight Cafe alongside Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. And yet you really were learning on the job, It's around this time that you write a song called Universal Soldier. Now, can you walk us through the origin of this song? You're in an airport, on the way to San Francisco. What do you see?
3: Well, the door opens, and here come a bunch of medics in uniform. This is Vietnam time. And uh, they were wheeling wounded soldiers in gurneys and wheelchairs. And I got to talking to one of the medics. And um, at the time, we were being told that there was no war in Vietnam. And so I... (laughs) talking to the medic. And you know, I yeah, they're telling us there's no war. And he assured me, yes. <laughs> so I had been coming from Mexico. I was in San Francisco overnight, waiting for a morning flight. And I just started thinking about that. Who's responsible for war? Is it these poor guys lying there? You know, they signed up and enlisted because of, I don't know, family tradition or to see the world or a sense of patriotism or, yeah, they have a certain responsibility. Then, you know, the night goes on and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. What about career military officers? What about guys who spend their entire adult lives uh, getting advanced degrees in how to make war better? I mean, you know, we don't talk about this very often. And in North America, we have four very heavily funded, very serious colleges of war. There's the Royal Military Academy, uh, Annapolis, uh, West Point, uh, the Army College of War, the Air Force Academy. It's five of them. All these years later, we don't have one single college with the funding and the clout and the seriousness who are teaching alternative conflict resolution. And alternative conflict resolution, I think, is really the key phrase. It's not, we're going to march for peace. No, of course you are, but alternative conflict resolution can be taught. Gandhi changed the history of India and the British Empire with alternative conflict resolution. Martin Luther King, that's what he was doing. But we're not doing it. And look at this crazy world today where even our brothers and sisters online are trolling and fighting and backbiting and bullying. And we don't have to do it. We can let all of that go. We don't have to tear the system down in order to make it better. We just need to start making sense, I think. So Universal Soldier, I had thought about The poor soldiers, you know, enlisted men. I thought about career military officers. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, who is it who actually makes the decision, you know, presses the button, makes the phone call that starts the war? Aha, the politicians, you know, now let's get them. They're they're obviously the ones. But, you know, when it comes down to it in a so-called democracy, uh, who is it who votes for the politicians? So it comes down to us. So Universal Soldier is a song about individual responsibility for the world we're living in.
0: Well, then why don't we take a listen? This is a live performance of Universal Soldier. He's the
3: Universal Soldier, and he really is to blame. His orders come from far away no more. They come from him and you and me. And brothers, can't you see? This is not the way we
0: As the song comes out in 1966, the good part is that the track is powerful and urgent. The bad part is that some people in the music industry took advantage. What exactly happened here?
3: When I went to Greenwich Village, I had never met a lawyer. I had never had a conversation with a businessman. I didn't know any of the rules. I didn't know you're supposed to kiss businessmen on both cheeks. I had none of that. Are you supposed to? Apparently. Anyway, I was really, really green. And I was singing Universal Soldier at the Gaslight Cafe, and the highwaymen came in. And they were coming off a number one worldwide hit called Michael Row The Boat Ashore. Yeah? They were, um, a, you know, a, a men's singing group, kind of a preppy singing group. They sang a lot of really actual folk songs they needed one more song for their for the album that was going to come out right away. And they wanted to record Universal Soldier. And I said, sure, yeah. And there was a guy sitting at the next table. The high woman said, okay, so who's your publisher? And I said, what? <laughs> I didn't know what a publisher was. You know, I was just right out of college. And the guy at the next table said, oh, I can help with that. And so this guy, Elmer Jared Gordon, you know, I gave him the publishing for $1. That's how green I was. Ten years later, I bought it back at least part of it for $25,000. The good news is that I had the $25,000 to do it. The bad news is that I had to do that at all just by being, you know, from being so green and that someone would take advantage of it like that when they knew that they wouldn't have to do one single thing. It was already sold to the hiring man, you know. It's not as though they had to go out and find someone to sing it. That's how some people in any business are. It's not just show business. I'm not saying show business is all crooked. It's not. Any business attracts uh, sharks and people who are after money, and they really get a kick out of it. They love it as much as I love making music. I learned from that experience never to do that again.
0: Never to sell your song for $1? Never to sell my song. But in that purchase, didn't the musician Donovan begin to take credit for the song?
3: Well, you know, Glenn Campbell recorded it. A few other people recorded it. Donovan was a, a singer-songwriter himself, and he only sang his own songs except for two. Universal Soldier, which I wrote, and Codeine, which I also wrote. And people just assumed that Donovan wrote it, and Donovan's management never told anybody that I didn't, and he was much known, you know, much better known than I was. So people just assumed that he wrote, "Universal Soldier" and "Codine," but he knows he didn't, and I know he didn't.
0: Do you ever talk to him about it?
3: Oh yeah, it's there's no big deal. You know, people make mistakes. You don't take that kind of thing personally. I just do not hang on to grudges; they weigh you down. No, in one ear, out the other. It's a new day. Let's go. How do you do that? Just do it. I don't want to have bad feelings giving me nightmares. Here's a parallel philosophy. I don't read horror comics. I don't go to horror movies. I don't put that kind of stuff into my imagination or into my uh, archives or into my <laughs> data bank. You know, I just don't. I don't inhale that kind of stuff. I keep my nose on the joy trail. It's kind of a motto. you know. Keep your nose on the joy trail. Follow the things that you love and that you know that are good for you. And if you're the kind of person who wants to be effective at something, keep your nose on the joy trail. Don't follow some stupid, you know, (laughs) alcohol trail or, you know, cheating, money, thievery. You know, don't go down roads that you don't really love. Go down the roads that are really exciting and meaningful to you. Life can be quite simple, actually. Recently, uh, I had a Zoom call with the Dalai Lama, and that was very, very wonderful. And what I love about the Dalai Lama, even though I'm not an official Buddhist, (laughs) his philosophy amounts to two things, really. Mindfulness, you know, just common sense, pay attention, yeah, And compassion. Any question that you'll ask him will probably come through one or both of those concepts. Mindfulness and compassion. Those two things, looking back, have served me very well, too. I pay attention, and I don't inhale stuff that is bad for me.
4: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow up to the tipping point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the Unconventional Awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking, win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat.
2: JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism.
1: Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year the army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How is the Pentagon responding? And How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Adi Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Your ability to avoid the bad stuff, to stay on this joy trail, it's especially inspiring because of all the hardships you've faced. And yet I realize... Using the word hardship is maybe mischaracterizing how you actually process difficult situations. And I say that because in your biography, the author has this passage that I think is important. She wrote At one point in this biography, I started a sentence with the words tearing down. And in the editing process, Buffy crossed them out and provided this alternative creating in spite of and beyond. Your work is not defined by tearing down systems, but creating in spite of and beyond. Is that fair to say?
3: It is. I really feel as though a lot of good, effective work doesn't happen because people think that they have to tear something down. You have to tear down the school, the government, the curriculum. You have to tear. you got to tear. You don't. You just provide something better, and everybody's going to love it. That's it. I'll tell you, here's something that I, I tell people often. I, and it, it comes from a song that nobody knows, really. song was on some album I did in Nashville. song's called Jeremiah. But the last verse of it says, it says, Some will tell you what you really want ain't on the menu. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. Cook it up yourself. And then prepare to serve them. Serve them. See, again, it goes back to being a teacher in love with the creator and creativity, loving the process of delivering something delicious, even if it's of a little bit of a a serious note, you know, a serious topic.
0: Well, I guess we better play this song.
3: If you want to, yeah. It's a pretty good song. It's not very well known.
0: This is Jeremiah by Buffy St. Maria. You're talking about making music that if you don't see it on the menu, you have to do it yourself. The music industry had preconceived notions about the kind of songs that you could make, or rather they had this idea that you could only make a kind of protest song or an indigenous song. And the great irony of your career, I think in some ways, is that until it's time for you to go is actually the song that ends up getting you into some trouble, which is a love song. How does this happen?
3: You are so smart. Almost nobody puts that together. Most people think that I got blacklisted by Johnson and Nixon because I wrote Universal Soldier. No, it's not that cut and dried. I wrote Universal Soldier. Glenn Campbell recorded it. Donovan had a hit. with it. It was all over the place. No, I got in trouble, as you said, and very few people are hip enough to know that. I got in trouble because Until It's Time for You to Go was being recorded by everybody and his sister. I mean, Bobby Darin and Elvis Presley and Barbara Streisand and Sonny and Cher. Cher recorded it twice. Uh, Neil Diamond, Chet Atkins, Roberta Flack, Johnny Mathis, Arthur Fiedler in the Boston Pops Orchestra. Everybody was recording Until It's Time for You to Go. And all of a sudden I was on The Tonight Show shooting my mouth off about Indian issues. That's what got me in trouble. What got me in trouble is that my song got famous and got me on television where I expressed information that certain people did not want known. Like? Well, Just uh, singing Now That the Buffalo's Gone on The Tonight Show when Harry Belafonte was, was hosting. Uh, now the buffalo's gone, you know, we've already talked about that. That's about the theft of Indian land by a bunch of slicks hand-in-hand in hand with government. That's how you do it, boys. That's how you do it. <laughs> so And I was saying things like that on live television. And the reason that I was on live television was because all of a sudden, um, until it's time for you to go, was being recorded by people who thought quite differently from me as well as may have agreed with me about political issues. I think it's an important point that you've made. It's not as though you have to be scared to write something like "Universal Soldier." You don't. I don't like it when people think that "Universal Soldier" is what got me in all that trouble because I think that's going to discourage songwriters from, you know, telling the truth and trying to be effective through songwriting, which I think is a wonderful thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a whole lot of respect, by the way, for the three and a half minute song. If you can say something in three and a half minutes that somebody else has to have a multi million dollar movie or a 400 page textbook that'll wind up on the shelf no you're better off with a three and a half minute song a song is portable <laughs> you can play it on any instrument you can do it in different languages it can be done in different styles and different genres and it's immediate you know and it's replicable so the the song itself is an incredible tool for change I think and a lot of people I think look at look at me, especially, I mean, in the U.S. they do. In other countries they don't, but in the U.S. because I was taken out so early, you know, after the 70s that people didn't hear from me and my fans thought I'd retired or died or something. But in other countries, uh, they, they continued. And consequently, in the U.S. it's a little different and uh, very often people will look at me like a victimized, you know, because of being indigenous and because I've written some real strong songs. A lot of people think I'm real big because Universal Soldier is kind of ballsy (laughs) So I would say that some of my songs have overshadowed the diversity of things that I write about and styles that I write in. And uh, because I didn't have teachers or I didn't have peer pressure, I didn't know any better. So I didn't concentrate only on one genre. It's not as though I was in Nashville and you have to do country, right when I was in Nashville, I was doing everything I was doing some great rock and roll, some wonderful country and lots of love songs. but some people will will associate my name with victimization or or tragedy, and they forget that the only money I've ever made has been because of love songs, but they don't know that I wrote until it's time for you to go and they don't know they don't associate me with up where we belong they don't know so Uh, It's always interesting to cross the borders and to realize that people perceive you a little bit different. But it's all good. It's all good.
0: I do think they ought to perceive you as someone who also wrote these remarkable love songs. So why don't we play a bit from the track that would eventually get you blacklisted until it's time for you to go. You're not an
3: angel, you're a man. I'm not a queen, I'm a woman, take my hand. We'll make a space in the lives that we'd planned. And here we'll stay until it's time for you to go.
0: What were you thinking about as we were listening to that? It kind of looked like you wanted to say something.
3: I'm uh, I'm glad to talk to you today. And if there's some, if there's one thing that <laughs> that would make me real happy, would be if you know there's some some up and coming songwriters coming up, who uh, you know wonder what it's like uh, to have gone through what I went through, in terms of the combination of being effective and speaking out as a songwriter.
0: So you were an effective songwriter, which got you into some trouble when you're on the Tonight Show, talking about. These issues. Are you ever nervous?
3: No. As uh, a matter of fact, I went on Good Morning America and uh, I debated a congressman and won. But I mean things like that, it's not my it's not the lyrics to Universal Soldier that get me on a blacklist. You know, there are people, Congress people even, who just don't want Indians or anybody else having anything to do with the control of all available lands and natural resources. They want those reservations. They want to put up condos. (laughs) So, you know, that's the kind of atmosphere that you're dealing with. It's like the heart and soul of now that the buffalo's gone is very different from the heart and soul of why these people don't want Indian people to have control of our own destinies.
0: What do you mean by that?
3: You know, it'd take too long to really get into the details of the continual land grabs. I mean, just the things that are going on. You ought to talk to Winona Leduc, by the way. Winona Leduc from honor the earth. She and many other people, especially along the Canadian border, up in you know Minneapolis, North Dakota, uh, they're dealing with Enbridge and other oil companies who uh, are, are huge polluters and huge lawbreakers. I mean, Standing Rock is an example of what I'm talking about. And it's ongoing. And there are oil companies that will just break all kinds of laws. I know too much about the oil industry, uh, fracking, uh, the tar sands uh, in Canada, to be able to give you a little polite summary. Well, we,
0: we don't need anything polite on this show.
3: <laughs> I mean, this is a very issuey time in our history. Oh, my God. You know, between the climate change, COVID, and the political Polarization and kind of chaos that's going on right now. This is a very strange time. This isn't the way it usually is. And if there are Indian issues now, oh, it's very, very hard to get any column space on it. I just feel as though people are not aware of any of either the triumphs or the tragedies of indigenous people. And as a school teacher with a guitar <laughs> and a microphone, I'm just thrilled to spread that message. In Canada, we're dealing with terrible, terrible things, and we're acknowledging them. You and the U.S. are also dealing with similar terrible, terrible things, but you're not acknowledging. You don't even know about them. Missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is not a thing in the U.S. The residential schools, you know, the grave, you know, they've been exhuming the graveyards and the backs of the residential schools, and all these little dead Indian kids, you know, who, who are. Everything from just uh, sex toys for priests and nuns and Indian agents and, I mean, the, the history of residential schools is so tragic. It's so tragic. It's all over the news in Canada. And every child knows about it. And as a school teacher and a mom myself, you know, what I'm trying to provide is the alternative to that. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't talk about those issues. I'm saying yes, those issues are being talked about and are very real and important for children to understand in a child-friendly way. But we must, we must also provide the alternative, strong, positive information that nobody talks about. For instance, okay, pretty soon is gonna be NFL season. It's going to be the Super Bowl. It's going to be the Stanley Cup. Very few people are aware that team sports were invented by indigenous people on this side of the water. Team sports did not exist in the rest of the world. Even in the Greek Olympics, they were all solo sports. The concept of team sports, that is huge. The Mayan ball game you know, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, they were already playing team sports, stadiums with bleachers, goalposts at either, uh, goals at either end, protective equipment like hip pads and knee pads and shoulder pads, helmets with animal logos. What does it sound like? We invented that. Our kids should be able to claim that and celebrate that. And that's only one of the many contributions that indigenous people of the Americas have made to the entire world. There are just a lot of uh, inventions, you know, things like rubber, rubber, the rubber ball. That's why we had, a, we had team sports and you guys didn't maybe <laughs> because we invented a rubber ball. You know, in a way, it, bring, it brings me down in a way when I think about our kids who don't know these things. And it brings me down even a little further when I realize that school systems for which I have been trained to work uh, are unaware of these things. I had a very, very wonderful uh, experience um, when I took a break after Sesame Street. I took a break for 15 years to raise my son, and I really wanted to follow up on the idea that I've been talking about. I really wanted to write a new kind of curriculum, but I mean core curriculum, that uh, included indigenous people. And most people don't know what core curriculum is. Core curriculum are all the subjects that everybody agrees need to be taught in a school, like uh, science and geography and social studies, government, stuff like that, and... Just like you don't have to tear anything down to make it better. I wrote up this curriculum, including indigenous people, science through Native American eyes, geography through Native American eyes, government through Native American eyes. I mean, what does that look like? It means that in the U.S., Kids in New York and kids in California, kids all over the country have to mat. They have to be studying certain things at certain time in their education. So, if your kid moves from New York to California, we have to know that at grade five they're still going to be studying the principles of sound. And there's no reason why you have to teach the principles of sound just in a flat surface book that has a graph. What? Nobody know. How are you going to learn the difference between frequency and amplitude like that? I gave them sliders in their computers so that they're like a little recording studio. I mean, once you play with two sliders and one of them is amplitude and it's getting louder and it's getting softer and it's getting louder and it's getting softer, that's amplitude, amplitude, amplitude.
0: You're giving Tim, our engineer, a heart attack know, over there. I know,
3: he's dying. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> There's no reason why we have to teach frequency and amplitude and other sounds just through tubas and pianos and European instruments. You can teach exactly the same thing through a study of drums, flutes, an apache fiddle, a mouth bow, singing, rattles. So we teach core science through an indigenous perspective. The kids are rewarded with an indigenous people's jukebox where they can hear, you know, everything from a tribe called Red to to, you know, Powwow and I had started a scholarship foundation in about 1968, I guess, the Nihewan Foundation for Native American Education. And uh, in working with a lifetime of like-minded people who were on a good trip, I've had the unique experience of um, working with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the Ford Foundation. They all supported my little cradleboard teaching project for a number of years, and uh, we modeled it in 18 states and many places in Canada. But what's important is not the business, because I never tried to turn it into a business. I'm not good with business. I don't really believe in it. I think there's just too much um, room for corruption. And I think that (laughs) many, 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 many businesses are only about, you know, take as much as you can get and give the least you can. I think that um, life in a circle in an indigenous way is quite different from the hierarchical pyramid model of take as much as you can get and give the least you can, you know, keep those people under you working for you. That's just old fashioned. It's obsolete.
0: You know, if life is in a circle, as you say, perhaps that's why you've dedicated so much of your time here with children, teaching them, encouraging them, paying it forward. And I wonder, what do you think spending time with kids has done for you and also your music?
3: I don't know. I got a chance. To, I, mean, I was interested in um, electronics. I, I'm interested in in things like a kid is interested in things. I, I'm interested in anything that will make noise. <laughs> You know, banging on pots and pans or playing a piano or picking up something that has some strings in it, but maybe it comes from a different country and I don't know what to do with it. Natural musicians, we can have fun with all that stuff, you know, and it's no big deal. And electronic music for me was the same thing. I approached it playfully. It was fun. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have to pass a course on it. (laughs) I didn't have to write code. And you didn't have to know what you were doing. You were experimenting. And it was fun. And really, that's all there is to it. It's as simple as that. Keep your nose on the joy trail and have some fun with music. It's not a chore. It's not work. If it is, if it is, you're not in the same business I am. Anyway, I know that there's different ways to go about music, but uh-uh, I like to play it.
0: In the '60s, when you were first starting out, you always have this quote, which is, "I never thought it was gonna last. I didn't. I never thought it would lead to anything." And as we leave, I'm thinking about how, on the fifth floor of the Academy Museum. You were there alongside these other trailblazing women.
3: Yes, what an honor.
0: You're going to see it for the first time tonight.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: It's kind of remarkable that you and I are talking before you do this. But how do you think you'll feel?
3: Oh, I already feel. I mean, I'm all, I already feel honored by it. I found out about it, you know, a couple of months ago. So it's really, really nice. And I was real sorry that I couldn't come in and really be happy with it. But Saturday night, I am able to participate in, in the honoring of my Academy Award. It's going to be West Study. He, West, last year, he received an honorary Academy Award for his body of work, which, of course, is wonderful. Tantu Cardinal, who's one of our foremost actresses. Oh, my God, she's an incredible actress. Uh, Robbie Robertson, <laughs> who needs no introduction. Oh, and I'm the fourth one. <laughs> uh, we're being honored for, uh, as indigenous people, and uh, I was the first... And for a very long time, the only indigenous person to receive uh, an Academy Award, what they call a competitive Academy Award. Wes's is honorary, but Taika Waititi, who is so well-known now from New Zealand, he now is the second indigenous person. So for a long time, I was the first and only indigenous person. <laughs> Now we have, you know, the Academy is trying to open to a bit more diversity, thank goodness. Uh, And there are a lot of good people, especially Bird Running Water, who are really helpful. You know, it's it's hard for a big institution like the Academy or, you know, uh, any institution really, to know the grassroots, to know the inner circle, to know the people who are really productive but might not be uh, easy to find. So we have a team who have been doing that, and it ought to be really a lot of fun tomorrow night. I don't know what to expect. I don't have any expectations, so I know I'll have a good time. (laughs) It's always better to
0: not have expectations, although I'm sure you're going to have a good time. And it's true. You won that Oscar in 1983 for co-writing Up Where We Belong. But this full-hearted celebration of you and your work, it's long overdue in this country. And... It's this country that I want to sit with for a moment. To do that, why don't we play a bit from this song? It's one of my favorites, called America My Home. (laughs) ¶¶ Hawaii with all of your animals and pets.
3: <laughs> you make me smile.
0: <laughs> when you go back there, yeah. you had a long search for finding home. Do you think you found it?
3: Oh, yeah. I love living where I live. It's not as though I'm a hermit, but um, I live in nature. I live in the mountains in Hawaii. You know, It's not like I'm <laughs> on a beach on Maui. It's not like that at all. And that really is home. And it's partly home because of what's not there. Like I said, I'm on the road all the time. I live in cities. I'm in Paris and Oslo and Sydney and L.A. And, you know, I'm all over. But my recharge, really, is what I'm trying to say. My recharge comes when I'm in nature and at home with animals and pets. I live at the end of the rainbow.
0: And for the last hour, I have, two, Buffy St. Marie, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, too.
0: Our show. Special thanks to Lauren Mealy, Gene Sievers, Lexi Dayton, True North Records, and of course, Buffy St. Marie. To learn more about Buffy's work, visit our show notes at TalkEasyPod.com. There, you'll find a back catalog of over 250 episodes if you enjoyed today and recommend our talks with Janelle Monet, Lord, Run the Jewels, Sleater Kinney, Representative Ilhan Omar, and Brittany Howard. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support the show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or one of our vinyl records with Fran Leibowitz you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Of course, our show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our lead editors are Andre Lynn and Clarice Guevara. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Ben Tolliday. Our engineer is Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Music by Dylan Peck. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wan, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richman, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Carly Migliori, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Happy holidays to you and yours. I'll see you back here next Sunday. Until then, stay safe and so long.
4: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobilecom mobilecom slash unconventional awards. See you there. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
1: Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.